Last November, uh, my wife and I welcomed our second child to the world. And ha- as has become the custom uh, w- with so many of us, my, my mother-in-law graciously agreed to come out and help us during those first few uh, restless and uh, sleepless days and nights. Thankful for her help, thankful for the extra set of hands, and very much in need of an endorphin rush, I set out for a, a run near my home. I was using my, uh, my iPhone as, as uh, my sort of Walkman there, list, listening to some music, when I received uh, a cryptic text that said, we really need to talk when you get home. Now, no new father wants to get a text like this, so I hurried home as fast as I could. And when I opened the door, worried, I opened the door to, to see my, my mother-in-law and my wife doubled over in laughter, looking at uh, this picture of me looking at this picture of me from many Halloweens past. Uh, Thank you, Mom, for tearing up those curtains to make my clown costume. So clearly, my wife and my in-laws had some questions for me at this point. Questions like, are you a serial killer? And is this whatever's going on here heritable by my grandchildren, right? So I say this to you, I, I, I embarrass myself thusly to prove to you a point that will need no further proving, I'm certain, um, that I've always been a little bit strange. What I, what I hope to present to you tonight, though, is that you ought to be strange too, and that indeed your ability to achieve two of the things for which people strive most earnestly in life, uh, an, an adequate living and happiness and a meaningful life, are predicated on your willingness to accept your quirks and to be a little weird yourself. So I work in a weird field, right, true to form. I work, this is a, this is a conference about intersections, and I work at an intersection. I, I work at the intersection of uh, psychology and finance, and I study both micro and macro financial decision making. Now, on the micro level, uh, I'm most concerned with developing products and services that minimize the behavior gap. Now, what's the behavior gap, you say? Well, any of us that invest in the stock market want a couple of things. We want to preserve our capital. We want to get the best return possible, right? And in that, we do a lot of things. We watch Bloomberg. We, we, we trade frequently. We try and stay on top of the markets. But it's incredibly, incredibly tough to do because we're subject to all manner uh, of emotional overrides and cognitive biases that make this a very difficult proposition. Um, So difficult, in fact, that you'll see that over the last 20 years, the market has sustained about an 8.21% return, but investors in the stock market have received a paltry 4.25%, which has barely kept up with historical inflation rates. So I'm trying to design communication processes and products that let us keep more of what the market gives us. Um, On the macro side, though, um, I study the ways in which aggregate investor behavior becomes dislocated from fundamental value, right? The ways in which fear and greed drive the marketplace. People uh, who have never invested tend to think it's very easy, right? Buy low, sell high, I get it, right? But the, 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 the problem is, though, we, because we're subject to these biases and these cognitive distortions, we have a very poor idea of what low and high look like. 
So for this reason, I created a zero to 100 index uh, of market fear and greed called the Irrationality Index, so that just as surely as a traditional shrink uh, has the DSM, which is the Bible of Psychiatry, I have a tool that I can look to to uh, determine the behavioral health of, of the marketplace. Now, one of the first things you begin to understand as you uh, look into financial markets is that the way that these things get blown up is by following the herd, right? We separately have our own ideas. We have nuanced and independent decisions. But when we start listening to our barber who bought Apple at 50, right, we start to get ideas and we start to run in a pack. This elevates our emotion. These elevated emotions lead in the short term to really uh, good stock returns. And these stock returns lead to more euphoria and so on and so forth until something bad happens and uh, our, our collective enthusiasm is punctured and it's sent uh, spiraling in the other direction. But this is not typically how we think about weirdness or irrationality, right? When we think about irrationality, we think about this, the, the slide you see behind you. We think about an outlier, someone who's a deviant or outside of the group. That's what's irrational to us. That's what's weird to us. But I'm here to suggest to you that just the opposite is true. We are at our best when we are pursuing our weird, quirky, idiosyncratic idea of a good life, and we're often at our worst when we're turning our decision-making faculties over to people who want to mold us into whatever they want us to be. So I'm here today to tell you to be weird, and I want to give you three very specific instances where I think that's the case. The first of these is that I want you to be defiant with principle. Now, I'm, uh, I, I'm from Alabama, and so I love anyone who's successful from the Deep South, because heaven knows there's not too many of us. So Sir John, <laughs> Sir John Templeton, native Tennessean, knighted, fantastic value investor, has said that there are two ways that you can beat the market. You must hold a non-consensus view, and you must be right. <laughs> because if you do what other people do, you get what other people get, and if you're wrong, you're wrong, right? So exceptional investors know. Exceptional investors know that they have to hold non-consensus views, but they know that being a contrarian can also be very, very uh, damaging to your portfolio. So they know to reserve this for times when they have a principled bet, right? When, they, when market conditions are out of alignment with what they know to be true. A fantastic example of this in, in recent times is the example of John Paulson, a relatively unheralded hedge fund manager. Uh, Mr. Paulson became convinced uh, that the housing market was wildly overvalued, very frothy. He made a very principled and significant bet against the housing market, which is now referred to as the greatest trade of all time. Books have been written about this, right? So surely... His investors loved him, right, and gave him a medal and patted him on the back for his brilliance. No. Investors left him. The Wall Street intelligentsia thought he was a moron, right? He was, he was derided for this decision all the way until he made $15 billion off of it and kept $3 billion for himself, right? <laughs> so, pretty good. So, making money is important, but I want to suggest to you that of, of far greater importance is being a principled contrarian in the social sphere. 
I look to people uh, like Susan B. Anthony, who as early as the age of 17 was creating literature, petitioning against the evils of slavery, and went on to spearhead the women's suffrage movement. I look to people like number 42, Jackie Robinson, who endured the racial epithets of not only his opposition, but even his teammates on the way to breaking down uh, the color barrier in baseball. I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not, I'm not uh, a proponent of rebellion for its own sake. But when the, when the, so, with the prevailing social ideas of the day stand in contrast to what is good or humane or just or true, leaders must stand up and be principally defiant in the face of this. Just as financial markets need principled contrarians, the world needs you to be principled in your defiance and to be a righteous iconoclast in the church pew, in the academy, and in the boardroom. The second principle that I want to talk about is intelligent risk. Risk is very, very muddy in finance. We talked earlier about murkiness, and risk is a very murky concept in finance. But uh, economics professors need tenure, and we need fancy models, and so economics uh, has given us volatility or the up-and-down movement of an asset as a proxy for risk. Now, there are a couple of reasons why I really dislike volatility as a proxy for risk. So you tell me, because volatility measures ups equally with downs, if you would see a 25% uptick in the, in the value of your pro- portfolio as risky, right? Would you find that risky? I, I don't think you would. The other reason is that it doesn't reflect how we think about risk over a lifetime. Volatility says we should have a smooth ride, but that's not the biggest risk. All of us have goals and dreams and things that we want to accomplish uh, with, with the fruits of our efforts and the money that we've made working hard, right? And if we get to the end of our investment horizon uh, and, and we're not there yet, not a single one of you would say, well, I got to eat cat food in retirement, but at least it was a smooth ride, right? We have goals that we want to meet, and if we fall short of those, that's risk. The probability of falling short of the things that are most important to you is what I really classify as risk. Now, I trained at this fine university, and when I was training as a clinician here, my very first client was a talented and compassionate graduate student who had applied to a number of prestigious universities for uh, for a PhD. She came to my office, though, with six envelopes all responses from the graduate schools where she had applied, none of which she had opened. When I gently asked her, what's the deal? Why haven't you opened, the, uh, why haven't you opened these envelopes? She confided in me that her fear of, of risking not getting into graduate school was so great that it had paralyzed her. It had frozen her so that she couldn't open, open these envelopes. Well, with the deadline looming, we worked together uh, to get her to a place where she could open these, right, and found many offers of enthusiastic support and acceptance. What had happened to her is what happens to many of us when we take sort of an overly zealous risk management policy to our lives, right? In the very effort of trying to make her ride smooth and to manage volatility in her life, she had brought about the very thing that she was scared of. 
Each one of us has a finite time here on earth, and the measure of our lives will not be the bumps that we avoided, but it will be the relationships that we built and the things that we accomplished along the way. And I can promise you that adding a little risk, doing what you love, and taking smart risk is a way to add richness and depth to your life. The final thing that I want to talk about is that the world needs your weird in that you need to be able to find hidden value. In late 2008, my irrationality index hit a score of 5 out of 100, signaling a brutal period of what I called market revulsion. Right? Money was flowing out of the stock market at this point in time in the double-digit billions each month, as many of us followed our friends and neighbors to a cash position and sat our money on the sidelines. But if you had stayed put, or even had the courage to run in when others ran out, you would have more than doubled your money over the next five years. All too often, investors ignore Warren Buffett's admonition to be fearful when others are greedy, and greedy when others are fearful. And I think the same can be said of life. Many of the greatest success stories of the last uh, of our generation are from people who learn to find value where others saw trash. Consider Billy Bean, who pioneered uh, the fantastic Moneyball approach to baseball. Bean eschewed big splash metrics like home runs in favor of the lowly and decidedly unsexy on-base percentage, which includes things like being hit by a pitch or walking, right? Not too hot, but it worked, and it allowed Bean to compete in what is a profoundly unfair sport. Or the founder of WhatsApp, who was rejected for employment at Facebook, but persisted in bringing his vision of an affordable international text messaging service to the world, and recently sold it back to Facebook for $19 billion, which is somewhat more than the starting salary of an average software engineer, right? Um, these two stories demonstrate something powerful. Very often, we need to look at others, others that the world has dismissed, and we need to look at them and say, this person is not weak and insignificant and small. I see value in them. We also need to learn to look inside when others have passed on our dreams and look at what we have to offer and say, I have something to bring the world as well. <clears throat> I'm often asked if my study of human behavior, my study of irrationality, makes me a better decision maker, and I'm, uh, I'm sorry to say that typically it does not. I'm a, I'm a big goal setter, and earlier this year, I sat down to uh, come up with my goals for 2014. The goals I wrote down and subsequently put on a big piece of poster board in my office, as I'm apt to do, were I wanted to make more money and I wanted to lose weight. And I sat back and I looked at those goals and I said, Crosby, those are some lame goals, my friend. And I ripped up the poster board and I threw it away. So here are my three new goals. I want to officiate a wedding because I'm a selfish guy and I want to be part of someone's magical day and I want you to remember me forever, okay? Now, I have it on good authority that Provo's into marriage, so if you're in the market, call me. Uh, my, 
my, my next goal... My next goal is that I wanted to bomb at stand-up comedy because I really do not feel that you have lived a good life until you have done something on stage that you are totally incompetent at. <laughs> and finally, and finally, and most importantly, I wanted to publish the, the book of dark but hopeful children's poetry I've been working on. <laughs> I'm not kidding. You, have, you haven't even heard the name yet. The, na the name of the book is Everyone You Love Will Die. <laughs> and shockingly, it has not been picked up by any of the majors. So I want to close out with the last two stanzas. I want to close out with the last two stanzas from a poem from that book called You Don't Fit In. And <laughs> says... Get serious. It says, and as you journey through the world, you'll find that every boy and girl has felt ignored and sad and small. We don't fit in one and all. But when you feel misunderstood, I'll tell you what you ought to do. Don't run and cry or swear and fuss. If you don't fit in, you're one of us. Thank you. Thank <clears throat> you.